Thank you, Shannon. That was beautiful. Thank you very much. I want to thank uh, Pam again for teaching last week and giving everybody a uh, orientation uh, to human trafficking. Pam, thank you very much. So once again, thank you to her. And I want to encourage everybody to attend uh, the class that she and Emily are doing uh, tomorrow night, starting tomorrow night at 7, seven o'clock, right? All right, very good. Uh, so today, before I get into the teaching, I just want to spend just a second in uh, prayer uh, because we're reminded again uh, that the world needs some help and that uh, there's some violence happening in the world and hatred happening in the world uh, that is um, really distressing and confounding. I mean, talk about ripping down the sign, which is, you know, a sign of hate uh, for sure, um, or at least confusion, or I'm not, I don't know, who knows what. Um, but then, of course, the shooting and the beating uh, that we are very aware of, uh, Tyree Nichols and what he went through. Um, you know, we look at this, and I'm just going to talk as a white guy uh, who's lived my whole life as a white guy. Uh, when we see uh, what happened and we see that um, the, the police team, the Scorpion force that attacked him was all black, then guys like me immediately think, oh, well, this wasn't a racism thing uh, because it was black guys, black cops uh, that were being inhuman and going against their oath uh, to beat him to death. But when you do research on the history of police in the United States, you find out that their origins were actually rooted in slavery, our present form and started out as uh, a force to capture uh, slaves who had run away. And that's a part of our model. Uh, and I'm, I'm a fan of police. My brother-in-law is a cop. I love my brother-in-law. I understand uh, they, are, they are in the middle of an incredibly challenging situation. Uh, they are. Uh, because our culture doesn't want to deal with some of the ugliest parts of our history. And so long as that's true, so long as um, the deck is set uh, for ongoing strife in many ways, it's going to be the cops who have to deal with it. And that's a horrible position for them to be in. And um, so we need to pray. We need to pray that hearts will be open, that <laughs> Jesus was in the same kind of spot in his day and age and had the audacity to say that love is the answer. And a lot of toothpaste has come out of, uh, of uh, the, what do you call the thing? <laughs> Thank you, the tube. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and there's not much uh, you can do to put it back. So all we can do with all that toothpaste is try to clean some stuff up. And that's who we are called to be as Jesus people. As what can we do faced with what we've seen, this horrible violence, and what does that say about our consciousness of violence? What does that say about the way we view other human beings? Uh, what does it say about our understanding of power? All these things uh, are wrapped up into our great challenge uh, that we're called forward to do, uh, which actually today's teaching is going to get to in a moment. But let's just pray together for a moment to center ourselves and be a part of that hope and solution. So God, uh, it is not hard to grieve. It is not hard to mourn when it feels like there is overwhelming violence in the world. 
Sometimes it's hatred against uh, the other in terms of sexual orientation and that causes some people to treat others harshly, inhumanely. It causes some people to tear down a sign. Sometimes the violence in our world is what we saw with Tyree Nichols who didn't have a record, who was just pulled over and scared for his life, ran for his life which ended up ending his life. We think of what's going on in Israel and the violence between the Palestinians and the Jews there. And we sigh. We think about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and we sigh. These are just a few of the headlines once wrote that the spirit, your spirit, God, works with our sighs, works with our groaning to help heal us, to get it out of our system, to meet us even in our pain and our struggle. And we need you. We need help with our grief. We need help with our anger. So we don't know what to do with it. And we're absolutely culturally conditioned to just act like the culture and swing back. But God, you who informed the MO of Jesus, his teaching, and what he did with his life, we're reminded that we are a people of shalom. We are a people of peace. We're a people to lift up a higher way, a way that actually heals, a way that actually restores for the long term that doesn't require violence but just the opposite. And so God, whenever we see these things happen, may your spirit remind us again of who we are and whose we are, that we would be people of love and grace, that we would be the first to choose nonviolence in our words, our attitudes, and our actions, that we would model the way that you modeled for us, that inch by inch we'll see more of the world transformed by love. May it be so. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today we wrap up uh, this series, Becoming Our True Selves, and I hope it's been fun for you. Uh, if you are interested in thinking through, discussing the last, this one and the last one we talked about, which was purgatory, 
Uh, I'll be hosting uh, that Tuesday at noon and uh, Thursday in the evening. I'm going to send out a Google invite uh, calendar thing uh, that I really encourage you to respond to so I know whether or not anybody actually has any interest in meeting with me talking about this stuff. Uh, because if you don't, then, well, we just won't do it. Uh, but I want to know if you're interested in that. Uh, I will have handouts on the last two sections of this from Martha Beck's book. And I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been helpful for you. I hope it's given you some insights into yourself and what we're dealing with in the world. Uh, because it's been helpful for me, and that's why I wanted to bring it to you. Uh, it's helped me see things differently and approach things differently. You know, it's just a framework for thinking about things in our life and our development and our maturity. Uh, that's really what we're after here. Um, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, you need to be more perfect than the Pharisees that they were challenged with. And that word perfect isn't perfect, like I got it all together perfect. The word means to be mature. And Jesus was saying there's a maturity that is lacking in those who are against me and us. And we're called to a deeper maturity. Well, this book is all about becoming more mature human beings, which is part and parcel. What salvation at its core that Jesus came to talk about is all about. So that's where we are today. And sort of give you a little bit of a reminder, refresher of where we've been. We started with the dark wood of error, uh, sort of in the middle of the story, because that's usually when we're starting to wake up that there's a problem. Uh, we don't wake up on a Tuesday and say, I'm going to cause some problems in my life right now. No, we wake up six months from that Tuesday, and we're in the problem. And we wonder, how do we get here? And we're confused, and we wonder, what is going on in my life, and how do we deal with that? And we find out that uh, sometimes uh, we have a range of people that are willing to guide us through the dark wood of error to help us see things differently. And they take us right into uh, the fiery inferno uh, to help us understand how we got there. And you'll remember uh, that the inferno here is not just simply some weird place in hell for all eternity, but the inferno and Dante's vision of things, which was why this is a masterpiece, is it's an opportunity to learn uh, from people who are in this space, from, you know, lesser offenses to very deep offenses of lying. They're all about lying to ourselves and others in one way or another. But they're to learn about ourselves throughout this whole thing. So we can identify, oh, well, where have I been lying to myself? Where have I been lying to others about reality? So that we can overcome it, understand ourselves so that we don't repeat it again. And then purgatory isn't this, you know, sort of, holding place until Jesus comes back or whatever. But purgatory is actually, you know, I kind of gave you that little way of thinking about purgatory as purge a story. Uh, because purgatory is that space where we're trying to learn new ways, which is difficult because our old ways always want us back. The systems that we found ourselves in always want us to be who we've always been, not who we're called to be. And so purgatory is that space for us to learn new steps along the way. And it, it starts off really hard and steep, as change always does, but it gets easier with time. Change back attacks always happen. Uh, this is a Martha Beck phrase, uh, because systems are what they are. Uh, but it gets easier with time. And today we're looking at paradise, which is a very interesting uh, space. Uh, Martha Beck notes that uh, Dante, when he's writing this, actually encourages people to stop reading, to stop taking the journey because it's too fantastical for them to understand. And that's where Martha Beck gets into this idea of satori. It's a Japanese word for sudden awakening. In the Christian world, we have our own terminology for that. Um, this would be like 
an epiphany. This would be um, an epiphany in liminal space in particular. Sometimes we use the word epiphany so generally that it's like we say, oh, I had this epiphany. I'm going to go get gas at Costco for 10 cents cheaper than, you know, at Arco or whatever. Um, not, not an epiphany. Epiphany, like we're talking about here, is a vision that is mind-blowing. And I want to talk about those things. So we're going we're gonna, to, I know there's a game today. I'm going to be kind and get you out of here early. Um, but I want to just briefly touch on Dante's. But more importantly, I want to talk about Isaiah and Jesus and Paul. And then ask ourselves, where is spirituality and faith leading us? So it might interest you to know uh, that the person uh, in his history who he quoted the most, uh, Jesus I'm talking about, the person Jesus quoted the most, the prophet Jesus quoted the most, was Isaiah. Far and away. Uh, first sermon he gave on Isaiah. And what was that first sermon really getting at? Uh, is that we need to think beyond ourselves. That God's not just doing a Jewish thing here, God's doing a human thing here. And that sermon back then for Jesus, remember? What he gave to his own hometown, you remember the result of that? His hometown wanted to kill him, wanted to throw him off a cliff because he had the audacity to suggest that God's grace was bigger than just the Jewish people and the people that they loved. But it was for everybody. And he backed it up with biblical proof. Well, Isaiah had his own satori, and I want to share it with you. So this is from Isaiah chapter 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died. You all remember that, right? <laughs> 740 BCE uh, was when that was. So we actually have, we know when this, this was, this year, 740 BCE. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Wait a minute. Did I, did I read that right? The whole earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Can you imagine this vision, this satori? Then I, Isaiah said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven armies. He thought he was going to die right then and there because he was in the presence of a holy God. Then one of the seraphim angels flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And we're a progressive church. That means that when we look at the Bible, uh, other progressive churches kind of have a similarity this way, uh, we look at it uh, in context, and we appreciate it in context. Uh, we try to get behind what is Isaiah experiencing here. If we didn't do that, if we took a, a non-progressive, I'm being really broad-stroked here, then we might take a more literal interpretation of a text like this. And we might then conclude that, in fact, heaven is a physical place somewhere, and God literally is a king on a throne 
somewhere up there in some place and he's wearing a massive robe so long that the, the train of it is filling the whole temple space. And we would literally think this is what we are going to someday. And we would see those angels floating around and we'd say to ourselves, that is exactly what angels look like. And we would commission painters to paint such things. So we could all know when we actually fell upon it that we were actually there. But a non-literal view just says this. This guy's having a satori. This guy's having a vision of God that is completely culturally derived from everything he's ever imagined God to be. Because in his mindset, he's thinking God is king over all earth. Heaven is literally up there above the hatches that hold back the rain. Because that's how they saw the world back then. And somewhere up there, there's a throne room. And there's a throne with a God on it who's in charge of everything. And he's got these guarding, guarding angels flapping all around. That's exactly what he would have imagined. But for you and I, to get stuck on that is to miss the point. Isaiah is having an experience that is blowing his mind. And it's going to change him. I think Jesus had a similar satori. Now, I get in a little trouble with this. I've ruined Christmas many times uh, with this. Uh, but just bear with me. I won't get into the whole ruining Christmas thing. But um, this is how I'm understanding who Jesus was and what happened. And there's a really confusing thing that happens in Jesus' life. He's following John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a hellfire brimstone preacher if there ever was one. He's telling people to clean up their acts. The refiner's fire is coming, which is going to make everything pure. But there's a threat in there, too. Like, you better or else. So even though the fire is a refining fire, which is a positive thing, the tone in general, you can't miss it with John. And the Gospels are really clear about this. That John has in mind people who need to clean it up, that God is mad at them, and they better figure it out. Jesus is drawn to this message. He's drawn to the idea that God is going to do something in, uh, in their oppressed uh, region. They're picked on by the Roman Empire. There's corruption in, the, in his rendering of the church. When is God going to show up? And so Jesus is all on board. And he sees his distant cousin here. And he gets baptized and something happens before, during, in the middle, after. I don't know. Did time stand still? But something happened to Jesus because according to a couple of the Gospels at least, as soon as that baptism thing was over, he did that. He left and he went on an extended camping trip because his mind was blown. And he had to figure out, what have I just experienced? And when he came back, his message was clearly different than John's. He did not continue the message that John preached. And that tells me, it confirms to me, he had his mind blown. He could not come back the same as he was. He wasn't just a cleaned up version that John was calling about. He was a changed person. That's Satori. Uh, Martha Beck talks about this, and she says that, you know, people that uh, 
well, actually, there's studies that talk about people's orientation in life, and she says that, um, you know, roughly half of the people in the world have a really pessimistic view of the world and everything in it, a scarcity mindset where we got to really hold on to our own tight, and it's all going to hell in a handbasket. You can't trust anybody, and it's just, it's all a big mess, and we have no hope, and it's all going to end anytime soon, and God's going to, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to kick out all the jerks, and of course, that's never the person who is thinking that's going to happen. The jerks are everybody else, right? That about half the world thinks that way, or maybe even more. I think it's more. And then there's another group of people who see the world very differently. They see the world infused with goodness. They see equanimity. They see connectedness with each other. And what Beck notices is that people who have experienced Satori, the real deal where they have had some kind of mind-blowing glimpse of what, what else is going on here that we call God, that they come back that latter view where they are seeing things very connected. They are seeing love permeate. They're not seeing differences between people anymore. They're just seeing fellow human beings. They're seeing fellow creation. Their whole orientation to everything changes. Uh, just to give you one idea about what this is like, out of curiosity, how many of you were born and raised in California? All right, most of you. Um, Anybody born and raised in the Midwest like me? Okay, thank you for raising both arms, Karen. <laughs> that doesn't mean you get two votes, all right? <laughs> Excited about Nebraska, right? So I was born and uh, raised in Kansas and the Midwest generally. Uh, I remember the first time um, that I saw a great lake. Uh, it blew my mind because of how big it was. Um, the first time that we drove across Kansas to go to the mountains in Colorado, uh, first of all, I could not believe how long that drive was. We whine about, you know, a couple hours to get up to the snow. It's like a 14-hour drive, right, to get from the Kansas City area past Denver and actually on your way to Estes Park or wherever you're going. And I remember the first time, do you remember, do you, can you remember the, I mean, you Californians, you got it so good. Do you, even, have you, do you even know what beauty you have around here? Because when you're from the Midwest and it's as flat as can be, which has its own beauty, don't get me wrong, but then all of a sudden you are in the grandeur of the mountains. You are, it's, it's kind of so Torish, right? I mean, you are blown away. You can't, you don't have words. And when you go see the ocean and you experience the power of the ocean, you're just like, <laughs> every family member that we brought out here uh, who's, who's not used to it, they remind us of how extraordinary creation is in our backyard. When we take them to Mere Woods or Armstrong and they're looking at a redwood <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how in the world can I not even reach far enough to span the width of this redwood they are blown away when we take friends to Tahoe who've never seen Tahoe blown away take them to Yosemite blown away have you ever had a blown away moment like that in creation yeah of course you have multiply that times a hundred or a thousand and now you've got Satori there's a guy named uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle he had a Satori. He was a Christian guy, and he had a Satori. And he kind of went nuts for a few years because he was so impacted 
by what he experienced. But when he came back and he started to write and talk about it, guess what he talked about? We're more connected than we ever thought. Love is everywhere. There's no reason to hold on to your hatred. All these beautiful things born out of Satori. Our own Apostle Paul had the same experience. This is how it shows up in the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Sounds like a nice guy. Actually, uh, earlier in his life, uh, we find out that Saul was uh, manning the coat check booth uh, while uh, Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian tradition, uh, was stoned to death. It was Saul who would become Paul. Uh, Saul, who was making sure that people could, you know, get their throwing armor on real well and weren't encumbered by their cloaks, uh, and he was totally fine watching Stephen uh, get completely pummeled because he didn't believe the right things. That was Saul. So that gives us our idea, and he's still breathing these murderous threats. He wants to go out and round these people up because they're not believing the right way. They're not believing his way. And he was deeply uh, theologically educated and filled with hatred. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, that's the people of Jesus, he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on the mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know it's God at this point. Lord is more like a who are you, sir kind of a thing. That's more, more how we need to read that. But he's freaked out. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, you can imagine that would ruffle your feathers a little bit. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself off, up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So, so rich. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink because Satori. His mind was blown and he realized that he literally was quite blind. Everything he thought he believed, everything he thought was true, gone. He doesn't know anything. Uh, this is his experience. He's later called to entrust himself to one of the very people he wanted to arrest, a guy named Ananias, who was a leader there in Damascus. When uh, God somehow speaks to Ananias and says, Hey, Ananias, I need you to do me a solid. There's this guy named Saul just rolling into town, and he's going to need your help. Well, Ananias knew who Saul was and what Saul was up to. And Ananias' first response was, Oh, heck no. Except for he may have sworn a little bit. Because I know who he is. And I know what he wants to do to me. And long story short, God says, You just got to trust me on this. You have to trust me that I'm, I'm working with this person. And they're actually going to be very instrumental in spreading the word of this good news that Jesus came to pre present. So you have two people, neither one of them want to trust one another, but somehow they both trust God and incredible things happen. That's Satori. That's a shift of a person who was so convinced in one direction uh, that he just decided, didn't even decide, he couldn't help it. 
He could not see the world the same anymore. I've never had a Satori. I've had experiences that let me know we got a whole lot more going on uh, than this flesh and blood and physical creation. I've experienced stuff that blew my mind, but not to this level. I'm a little nutty, but I never, <laughs> I never had it so much uh, that it blew me that way. There was another experience I had in 2005 as I was musing about all this stuff and reading some pretty expansive theology that's just helped me rethink things. It was, at, it was actually right after my doctoral work, which opened my eyes to so much about what the Gospel of John was saying, what the meaning of salvation is, all this. And uh, I remember I had this, I was really struggling with pain and suffering. And how do we make sense of that in the world? And knowing that God is love and God is bigger and how does this all work? And I remembered that I just had this glimpse of how things really work. And Beck kind of talks about it. Uh, she uses the word fractals, where there's this orderliness and connectedness and all this. And I won't go into the full depths of it because I can't explain it anyway. But, but what I recognized was is that even in our worst, even in our worst pain that we experience and that we inflict on others, even in that present, even if it ends in death, God is still bigger. God still gets the last word. God is still stronger. The love of God is still permeating. It's just always there like gravity. And it doesn't change everything. It doesn't make me less mad at, you know, injustice and pain and suffering and all those things. But it gives me peace that there is something bigger than all the awful in the world. And it holds us all together. And at the end of the day, it wins every time. That even while the most hate-filled person is doing the most hateful acts, they are breathing, and in their breathing, they are uttering the very name of God. Because every time we breathe, we do. Well, if I had that kind of experience and insights, or whatever you might call it, how much more for Paul? When you have a satori, when you have one of these liminal space experiences, epiphanies, you can't help but be changed. You are altered. I think Jesus was altered. Another interesting thing that Beck noted is that when people have legit satoris, legit uh, liminal epiphanies, where we're in those thin spaces where we see something bigger than ourselves and we recognize our connectedness and the love of God pervading everything, that not only does it change our perspective, but invariably, if a person lives out of that experience, they all elicit the same behavior. This is Paul speaking to his favorite church called the Church in Philippi. And he's talking about um, the law and obeying the law and all this stuff. And he says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts about being perfect, I have even more. So Paul's getting a little braggy here. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's a law thing to do. Do I have this up there? No, I don't. Okay. Let's do that one. There we go. All right. So he says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, by the way, Jesus was a Pharisee, who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. 
I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. 613 laws, Paul is saying he never violated one. I once thought these things were valuable, he says, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. That's the evidence of Satori. He's altered. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He's speaking unity. He's speaking being connected to this greater other we call God. He goes on and says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, <laughs> sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You know what Paul devoted his whole life to from that Satori forward? The exact same message that Jesus talked about in exactly the same ways. And the result of doing all this serving people and loving people and telling people there's hope, there's liberation. You know what it, what it, what it culminated in for Paul? His own death. <laughs> and what Paul is saying is, I will gladly do that because it's going to make me that much closer to God. It's going to make me that much closer in following the footsteps of Jesus. I'm going to experience Christ all the much more because it is in serving other people. It is in loving other people that we experience God more fully. So, of course, a man who has experienced Satori, who's experienced profound love, profound vision, of course it's going to alter him toward the love that he's just experienced. And what is he going to do with that? He can't help but do something with it. You can't hold him back. I remember the summer before my sophomore year in high school, I had one of these spiritual experiences that blew my mind. I had no, there was nothing in my background to, to you know, force my thinking to expect anything at all. But you know what happened as soon as I had that experience? You couldn't shut me up <laughs> about God. I, I was telling my best friends, I was telling them to listen to some terrible Christian music because it was so meaningful to me. It was really terrible. But anyway, and they, they let me know that for sure. I said, get back to Bruce Springsteen, man. I was like, well, all right. So, but you couldn't shut me up. Uh, my football team that I was on, believe it or not, I used to play football. Uh, my football team noticed a difference in me. I mean, I didn't even know what I was, I, I didn't, wasn't trying anything, but what I'm telling you is when people have this kind of experience and they're captivated by the love of God, they can't help but be anything but loving toward other people. Uh, one of the letters, 1 John, really calls some folks out in the early church. He says, you know what? He, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, go ahead and read it yourself. But he says, you know what? God is love. And if you find some folks that claim to be believers, uh, but they have hatred in their hearts, and they're inflicting violence on people, the love of God is not in them. Because God is love. How you know? If you've got somebody who has experienced the love of God, is what? They're loving other people. 
This is Jesus, by the way. What did he do after his baptism? He sorted things out through the temptation. Uh, scenes, three different temptations to mess with his worldview. What are you really about? Who are you really listening to? Is this an ego trip thing? Is this a power trip thing? Are you trying to play God? Those are what the temptations are. And it's no, no, no. Uh, scripture was quoted to him. He quoted scripture back uh, to overcome these temptations. And what does he do? He goes lives different. He does a different message and that message through and through was God is love and God loves you and everybody and that is what is going to change the world. It is not going to happen by force. It's not going to happen through bigger guns and all that stuff. It's going to happen through a changed approach to the whole thing. You're loved. You're loved. And where did he get this idea The guy he quoted the most. He is given this gift from God. Remember that coal on the lips thing from Isaiah? You know, what we're really seeing here uh, that Isaiah is, is learning from this, it, it was nothing that he could do. There's nothing he could do at this moment uh, to win acceptance, to earn his right to be in the company of God. He, he knew he was toast. And then God does something for him. He does something that is so that Isaiah will know grace, all love, all forgiveness, God alone. You can earn it. You can't get rid of it. It's God. So after this scene where his lips are now uh, touched and he's been told, see your lips, this coal has touched your lips, now your guilt is removed and then your sins are forgiven. Then I, Isaiah, heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And what is Isaiah's response? Heneni. Heneni. Here I am. Send me. When you have an experience of God, your mind is blown. And your mind sees things that you couldn't see before. Your worldview has changed and your heart is also changed. You can no longer live the way you once lived. Now you live in love and service to others. Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Pretty good odds uh, that uh, maybe none of us will have a Satori in that kind of level. They're rare. Uh, not many people have them. I haven't had one. Uh, I don't know if any of you have had one in this way. Uh, maybe with the help of some mushrooms, perhaps, but that's different. <laughs> maybe still valid, but, not, but it's different. Uh, so the question then is, do we have to wait for a Satori to experience what God is really about? And the answer is no. The question is, is what are we going to do with our spirituality and our faith? And the answer to that question is, if we know who God is, if we know what Satori does to people in terms of blowing their mind and helping people see everything as love, and we recognize that our actions after that is love, then we can already get a head start on that now. Start seeing the world as filled with the presence and love of God whatever, how we even understand what God is or define that. This greater other thing that holds us together in relationship. 
is loving and kind and inclusive and welcoming and forgiving and graceful and supportive and invites us to be a part of all of that. And not only does it do that, when we really understand that and let that change us, that I am loved, inherently loved, how can we help but not be loving? And that's what we're invited to do and to be. Last thing, and then we can go uh, have lovely beverages and eat good food and watch good football. I want to pray uh, and have us kind of tie this thing up. And then we're going to end with this prayer, which is a rendition of uh, the Lord's Prayer. So would you pray with me now? We'll, we'll get to that, and you can say it out loud with me in a minute. But right now, just close your eyes with me, if you would. So what would you hear today? Not from my voice, but from another voice. Is the Spirit of God messing with you today? What's going on in your heart? What is the message? What did you need to hear today? What do you feel called to do? Oh God, may we be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the ever-present love that permeates everything. The air we breathe, the ground we walk on, every fiber of our being held together by love. May it change our view of the world so that every person we see, every person who has been uh, the, the sufferer of injustice, and even every person who has inflicted the injustice, they are all equally loved by you. You can't not be that way. May that blow our minds. May it stretch us. And may the love that starts to grow in our heart really start to change our eyes so that we'll see differently our ears so that we'll hear differently our lips that we might speak differently our hands and feet that we would walk and live and serve differently we have been loved by you and we are grateful help us God to follow you to that end, we pray this prayer, a rendition of the prayer that you taught us to pray. Let's say it together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work to which we are called. Amen. May it be so. Thank you so much for being here today. I hope you had a good experience. We'll see you next week. Go Niners! <laughs>